people and welcome to the latest episode of uh, ReporterCast, which is also the last episode for this season in uh, October 2023. We're going to take a break and do some brainstorming and then return later on. And for today we have a very special edition. We're in Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, and we're going to talk about the top issues at the intersection of the war and the financial sector. I was invited here by an excellent NGO from the United States called SAN, the Syrian-Ukraine Network, to talk about um, war crimes and accountability at a conference organized by them. And they're, they're focusing on Syria and Ukraine and what these victims of aggression, these countries that, uh, these, these people that became victims of aggression uh, can, can learn from each other. And, um, also, uh, I'm, going, I'm, I'm talking about what the role of the financial sector can be in this situation, what the role of sanctions is, how sanctions are being implemented and what more can be done, where the loopholes are and so forth. My idea was that we are back in a world of cutthroat great power competition and we need to get better at making alliances with countries outside the West, outside the EU and the NATO sphere if we're going to make the most of sanctions, because at the moment things are not great. They're patchy, to say the least. The Russian economy has adapted and they have created a war machine, which is accelerating, if anything. And Putin is creating a war economy, which gives me the impression that he wants to fight a war against the whole world, not just a war against Ukraine. And I think it's obvious sanctions have failed to prevent him from doing that. Kiev is a beautiful city, it's got beautiful architecture, amazing people, parks, the pretty colors of autumn. It's as modern as most European cities and it's not too far behind in terms of development from any main western city. The people are heroes, they have a resilience that I admire very much. They have taken the Churchillian idea of keeping calm and carrying on to heart. But, um, Although I have eaten the food and drunk the drink and I can vouch that they're fantastic as well, I, I have to say it's a, it's a tragedy to, to have a war of conquest uh, inflicted on, on such an amazing people. And uh, it's also because they're great, enterprising, resilient and, and hopeful that they cannot and are not going to lose. And I think the future of Europe is in the East. But if you go out in the street and you look into people's eyes and in the train station and the supermarket, you see a, a great amount of suffering from this war. And they are suffering a lot more than they're telling us. They don't want us foreigners to know how, how hard things are for them. Um, they want to stay strong and they want to keep fighting. But for me, I'm a bit of a crybaby. I tend to get emotional and uh, I can easily see how difficult it is for the Ukrainians and, and how much they are suffering. And I almost break down thinking that a massive killer missile can fall on my head in the hotel at any time and I'm only here for three days so imagine being here with your whole family and, and, and all your friends and loved ones all the time to feel that danger. How strong do you have to be to live in this state of permanent danger? Nobody in the world should suffer like this. Ukrainians do not deserve it and I'm starting to think it's also our fault partly in the West for not helping them more at the beginning. And I think they're absorbing a lot of pain and trauma just by being, and for me, just by being here a couple of days, I can see the hurt is very profound from what Russia has done to these people. And the ongoing crime by the Russian Federation will never be forgotten, I don't think, by Ukrainians, and nor should it be forgotten by anyone else. And that said, 
My specialty is finance and business, so I'm going to pull back the focus on that. And with us today is Andre Mikheyev, who was patient to, to, <laughs> to wait while I finish my introduction. He's a lawyer specialized in international law, and he was kind enough to make time for our little podcast. And uh, we will discuss everything I mentioned. Welcome, Andre. Hi, Martin. It's very nice to meet you here. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, can you speak a little bit about your background, your life experience, your legal experience? Where were you when, when Russia started the war and what, what are you doing today? You work also mention your, you should mention your NGO, the Center for Ukrainian Victory. And can you say a little bit about that as well, please? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm actually, I am from Donetsk, a great city, which used to be a great city at the east of Ukraine. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it was in a very pro-Russian environment uh, since my early childhood and uh, I am very surprised how could uh, my uh, mind uh, survive and uh, still give to be a Ukrainian patriot. Then I moved uh, to Kiev and uh, I was studying international law so I became an international lawyer and then I decided to pursue my way at, uh, and to uh, continue being an, an international lawyer and in these hard times uh, my um, profession uh, appeared to be very useful. Uh, so I uh, suffered from um, war with, with the Russian for more than one time because first in 2014 pro-Russian forces, pro-Russian terroristic groups, they took over my native city and whole region and they proclaimed their so-called uh, People's Republic Republics there, and uh, it really influenced uh, my family and uh, and my life in a lot of times. And after that, uh, the full-scale invasion of Russian army appeared. Uh, at that time, I was in Kiev, and I uh, saw and I heard everything with um, I saw everything with my own eyes. I heard everything with my own ears, and I took active participation. And I decided to put my best contribution. Uh, my best professional contribution into fighting the aggressor and into um, bringing the truth uh, from the professional background to the international community to help them understand how dangerous is this aggressor and how cynical are its violation of international law and that every uh, each, all of the states should join join together in joint uh, efforts and uh, and combat it. Uh, currently, I'm working for the International Center for Ukrainian Victory. It's the Ukrainian uh, uh, civic platform uh, founded by prominent uh, Ukrainian NGOs, uh, which is specialized on advocating the interests of Ukrainian victory and of Ukrainian survival, if we are talking seriously on the international level. And uh, they are lobbying the decisions uh, about um, taking uh, the uh, criminals uh, for, from Russian Federation to uh, liability for condemning Russia and Federation as a state for its violation of international law, uh, for uh, uh, taking economic and political measures to help Ukraine and to support its military forces and to ensure its survival in this war because Really, Russia is a very powerful enemy, and without uh, international support, Ukraine uh, could not have stand it alone. Right, right. And um, yesterday during the conference, um, you mentioned 
there was a connection between the abuses of human rights that the Russian army has already committed in Ukraine, war crimes, and the possibility of the confiscation of financial assets from private players also and, and the sovereign. Uh, can you elaborate on that, please? Yes, sure. Uh, the uh, confiscation of uh, assets would be a fair uh, measure uh, to compensate for all the damage, not for all, because uh, currently damages and losses are much uh, higher than the whole amount of assets, uh, of Russian assets uh, ever in the world, and this uh, number may increase, unfortunately. But this would be a fair uh, measure to uh, compensate a part of uh, losses and damages which Russia inflicted and uh, Russian uh, military forces, Russian politicians and Russian financial players who are financing this uh, cruel uh, war, um, this cruel war. So um, if we are talking, uh, these uh, two uh, topics should be discussed separately. So if we are talking uh, about private assets, uh, uh, in Ukraine we already have a law uh, which uh, provides for confiscation of assets of persons who are linked to the commencement of war and uh, financing the war and uh, prop uh, making propaganda in favor of such war uh, through sanctions. Uh, first, uh, uh, the uh, assets are blocked through a particular uh, sanction and then, due to the court decision, after the fair uh, due court procedure, uh, they may be confiscated. And as of today, we have more than one billion dollars um, already confiscated in, in um, favor of uh, Ukrainian state and Ukrainian nation. Uh, but of course, uh, uh, it's uh, just uh, peanuts because uh, there are a, a lot more of private uh, assets of Russian oligarchs, Russian propagandists who play a, a serious role in this Russian aggression and they should be confiscated. Our, it's a very complicated issue because it's, uh, it's linked with the uh, right to property, it's linked with uh, a, a difficulty to uh, prove this connection and to prove this intent, for, for instance, to finance the war, finance the aggression and to gain something from this aggression. However, uh, our partners have already elaborated instruments like confiscation as uh, the punishment for evasion of um, economic sanctions, uh, confiscation as a direct economic punishment. We know about the draft <coughs> of the draft of the EU directive, and we also know about uh, the um, Canadian law uh, on special economic measures, which covers both states and private persons. And uh, actually, as of the end of the previous year, uh, the U.S. have already confiscated $5 million of the Russian oligarch and directed it to Ukraine. But of course, it's just a, a, a drop in the sea, as, as we say in, in Ukraine. Um, uh, the situation requires much more decisive action. So this is about private assets. If we talk about the sovereign assets, mainly the uh, assets uh, belonging to uh, the central bank, uh, uh, foreign uh, currency reserves, which are located majorly in the EU countries, especially in France and Germany, but also in the US and uh, and in Canada. Right. Uh, yeah. Currently, uh, um, uh, the, the situation is also very difficult in this regard. Although our uh, partners show uh, their decisive uh, position 
in elaborating these instruments, but uh, there are uh, a lot of legal and political and economic obstacles to it. I think we may uh, talk about it in more details yeah. later, but my opinion that would be a really fair measure uh, considering the um, grave violations of international law by Russia as a state because war crimes, crimes against humanity, the genocide there can be an especially an aspect of deportation of children, uh, the violation of the UN Charter, the violation of the International Court of Justice preliminary ruling, all of this may be considered as not just a violation of international law in general, it's like violation of uh, the peremptory, the imperative rules of international law, the rules of the higher class, which are recognized as mandatory for all the nations and which may, may not be interpreted in different ways. So I think it's fair enough. Right. So here um, you mentioned the deportation of children, clear crime. There's even a, there's a search, uh, an arrest warrant against Putin and his, his uh, ombudsman for children for this specific crime. It pertains to uh, one definition of genocide, which is to erase the identity of these children, transport them to Russia and create new Russians. Yes, exactly. So this is a crime. Sure. So on the, on the basis of this and on, on the basis of other war crimes, such as bombing civilian infrastructure, which again, they talk openly, the commanders, the, the political leaders, they talk openly about how they want to bomb specifically civilian infrastructure in order to weaken the Ukrainian nation. So from this, how do you get legally from this, which is quite obvious, uh, quite, quite an obvious crime, to confiscation? Because Euroclear is, um, Euroclear is the clearinghouse in Brussels. And they said they are open to transferring the profits from the assets of, of, of the Russian Federation. But the profits are, are being created because they have uh, assets that, that, that attract interest. So they, they can transfer that, but the underlying assets they don't want to transfer. So can you explain that a little bit? Yes, of course. Uh, you, you know, when we talk about uh, these particular crimes, uh, international crimes, where should differ a, a state, Russia as a state, and particular persons? Because an international crime may not be committed by state. It may be committed by a person, by a Russian soldier, by a Russian officer, or, or by a Russian politician who made a decision uh, or who made, uh, I don't know, so, some order which is implemented in, in such a way. So when we're talking about genocide, when we're talking about war crimes, we may talk about the uh, criminal liability of particular persons and confiscations of their private individual assets as a criminal punishment. For instance, if the Rome State provides for the confiscations, for uh, paying fines and for compensated to, to damages for criminals. Um, but when um, uh, we are talking about violations committed by Russian Federation, it's uh, as a state, it's a violation of the UN Charter, the prohibition to use the force against, uh, against other states, and uh, also prohibition, general prohibitions of its obligations under the Geneva Conventions, uh, which uh, regulate uh, uh, the rules of uh, behaving regarding civil population uh, in, in this regard. So a state may not, may not commit a crime, uh, these, are, these are different subjects. And uh, uh, the confiscations uh, regarding uh, Russia in this regard may be uh, uh, replied within the international legal liability of state, not international criminal liability. These are two separate right. issues. When we're talking about the Euroclear and about this, uh, we are, we, I think we already may talk about the main uh, 
inter main uh, legal barrier from the viewpoint of international law to confiscate Russian state assets. It's the sovereign immunity doctrine. It's the international custom which provides that a state may not confiscate, uh, seize or any, um, in any other way alienate the property of foreign state by decision of its own domestic court. It's an international custom, so it means that uh, the states universally uh, have uh, such an opinion that it must be done so, and they have the state practice. Moreover, this uh, uh, international custom was confirmed by the uh, practice of International Court of Justice. Uh, in 2012, and for International Court of Justice, this is like yesterday, because they are considering cases for a very long time. In 2012, they made a judgment in a dispute between uh, Germany and Italy uh, regarding confiscation of uh, German uh, state property by Italian courts. And they found out that even German grave violation of violations of international law uh, during the Second World War, which happened in Italy, they may not be a basis for confiscating German state property through uh, decisions of national court to compensate for the uh, relatives of victims. And uh, the ICJ even ruled to reinstate, uh, to, to um, uh, cancel these decisions and reinstate their uh, German right of property. So in this regard, international law used to be very strict, even violation of international humanitarian law, even violation of international human rights law may not be uh, a basis for violating the sovereign immunity of states. Uh, so, so the international custom says. There are no uh, active international conventions, treaties. Uh, we had uh, the UN Convention on Jurisdictional Immunities of State, but it didn't come into force because it lacked uh, ratifications. We had European 1972 convention, but it has only eight parties, so it's just a, a regional uh, instrument. Um, but they are respected as a codification of international custom, and currently it exists as is. And that's why uh, European Union states still are still afraid of violating this, because to their opinion, it would be a grave violation of this international custom, and it would create uh, a dangerous precedent and it would make international law as nothing. But for me, this uh, uh, argument is very disputable and I may um, tell opinion, my own opinion, an opinion of a lot of great international law is much more pro prominent than, than myself, why it's not so. Right, right. So it's, this, is, this is still being debated, it's, it's still being talked about, nothing is settled. And of course, while this is happening, Putin is making a mockery of international law every day and he's confiscating companies, foreign companies in Russia and he's giving them to oligarchs and he's creating a new class of oligarchs. So, you know, some people are very strict about following the rules while the rest just don't care and they're very, they're very proud actually that they don't follow the rules. And that brings me actually, again, you mentioned the oligarchs, and you mentioned how you want to confiscate specifically from those oligarchs that have supported the war, that are financing the war. So can you get into this a little bit? What would be a threshold? Because uh, at one end you have Malofeyev, the orthodox fascist oligarch who is sponsoring propaganda, he's sponsoring the war and so forth, and he had his assets uh, frozen and some in some in some countries even confiscated. But at the other end you've got Tinkov, Oleg Tinkov, the banker, 
who also was on the sanctions list, and uh, he condemned the war, he, uh, he gave up his assets in Russia, and um, he got off the sanctions list now, so now he's a, he's a free man. So can, can you get into that a little bit? What would be the threshold? Yes, sure. Uh, of course, uh, uh, Ukraine doesn't want the confiscation of every ro Russian in the world based only on uh, like Russian origins or Russian citizenship. Of course, uh, there should be the real uh, intent uh, established of financing and of supporting this uh, war of aggression of Ukraine. And also the connection between investments uh, made by such person and uh, the consequences of the war. For example, if we're talking about oligarchs who have shares in the in Russian defense and uh, military works and plans, and if we have data that their uh, money and their further investments were uh, used to um, like uh, to product much more drones, to product more missiles and uh, artillery weaponry, which is uh, which uh, then will like uh, to shell and totally destroy Ukrainian cities and Ukrainian people, of course, it will be, uh, it will be enough uh, basis to consider that uh, this man or this oligarch is really supporting this war of aggression in Ukraine and uh, his or her assets should be confiscated. But in reality, it's very hard to, to establish because these uh, people are very smart and they have a lot of proxies uh, through which they are um, like uh, through which they are executing uh, what formally. we call wallets in, yeah, wallets, in Eastern yeah, Europe. They yes. have people acting as their as their human yeah, wallets. Exactly, they have such wallets, and all, all all the Russian politicians they have wallets, and it's very hard to establish uh, first uh, that uh, this property really belongs to them, and second. Uh, the uh, specific intent. However, uh, the European countries, uh, the USA, uh, Canada, other countries have already imposed sanctions on such people. The um, um, prohibition to trade, the prohibition to uh, they froze their assets, uh, I don't know, prohibitions to establish business and, and so on. And uh, currently, really, the evasion of such sanctions when such people try uh, anyway to uh, continue their activities is uh, considered as uh, the best uh, basis for uh, applying more severe um, punishments uh, regarding them, including confiscation of assets. But uh, actually, to my personal opinion, as of now, issue of confiscation of Russian sovereign assets is much more perspective. Right, right, okay. And um, I have a broader question now about international law. What new international law treaties, conventions should be created, in your opinion, from just from what we've seen that that the Russian Federation has done to Ukraine? Uh, it's pretty clear, and you know, there's a lot of coverage of this that the United Nations is dysfunctional, to say the least. It it did not prevent this war. It did not prevent the Syrian war and many other aggressions. So what uh, what should be done? I mean, we, we need to create something to 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 make international law relevant, right? Well, um, to my uh, to my opinion, I, I made uh, I'm at all my ideas. I can't say that they are realistic because 
uh, they may be implemented only if uh, states uh, uh, will somehow waive uh, their understanding of their sovereignty, waive their understanding of their like own political interests and will, and I don't really believe in this. But actually, uh, the whole system, uh, whole system of international defense, uh, should be restored. For instance, uh, the situation when the main international perpetrator, Russia, <coughs> is a permanent member of the Security Council, the only UN authority which can make really coercive decisions and which can make really effective apply really effective measures. And Russia may block any decision by its widow power. To my opinion, this makes uh, this whole institution very ineffective. Uh, and uh, of course, the UN Charter should be uh, revolutionary uh, amended in, in this way. Also, the um, issue of states immunity uh, for uh, in cases of the gr grief violations of international law should be reconsidered because in my opinion uh, if uh, state sovereignty is placed above uh, even the highest standards of international law the human rights uh, the um, uh, prohibition to use uh, the force, uh, which means the, the prohibition to start, to start war, yes. Uh, the prohibition to uh, make an aggressive war, I think in this way there is no sense in, in, in international law at all. The, uh, this whole approach should be reconsidered and it should be uh, implemented in a new international instrument, national conventions which shall be uh, signed, voluntarily signed by all, all the states, as well as the rules on uh, international legal responsibility of states and on measures which can be applied against states who, uh, who are not eager to bear this international legal responsibility. Because currently uh, they are all existing just in, um, in, uh, in the form of drafts prepared by the UN authorities in the form of international customs, which are not binding, actually. Right, so States. tear all of it down and start from, the, start from the beginning. And on sanctions, countries have different views of sanctions, uh, different ways of applying sanctions methodologies. In some cases, one asset that is attached to a person who's sanctioned is considered sanctioned. But in other jurisdiction, it's not. In another jurisdiction, it might not be considered sanctioned. So there are many discrepancies. Can you tell me the main shortcomings of sanctions policy in in countries that are more closely allied to Ukraine, the EU, the UK, the US? Where do you see the problems with their sanctions policy, and any solutions? Well, no. Uh the European Union, the US, uh, applied sanctions against uh, Russia since 2014. And this showed that the sanctions are really an ineffective instrument. Because since then, Russia's GDP even raised. Uh, the uh, economy really adopted, as you said at the beginning, your reduction. And uh, all businesses got used to it. Because they also have Global South, who is uh, eager to partner with them and who is dependent in, in many ways on the Russian uh, resources. And they have a lot of private partners in Western countries, which help them to evade these sanctions. 
the main uh, disadvantage of sanctions is that first, uh, these are the temporary instruments, and second is that uh, all Western states, they of course try to make it extremely legitimate and uh, like uh, legal from all sides, uh, it, it's possible and that's why a lot of sanctions, a lot of freezing of assets, a lot of freezing, uh, uh, a lot of banks and embargoes were uh, later dropped uh, by uh, the sanctioned persons, for, for instance, uh, former Ukrainian president uh, Viktor Yanukovych who fled uh, to Russia. They were dropped in court and all the money returned back to them. So, considering the um, scale of uh, Russian aggression and its consequences, it's uh, estimated officially in 400 billion, more than 400 billion dollars as, as of today. It's much more than the whole amount of Russian assets, uh, private and uh, um, sovereign, placed in, in, in the whole world. Uh, sanctions are not adequate and equal uh, um, countermeasure. And uh, it would be fair if the international community goes further and uh, applies some much more effective. For instance, whole and irrevocable confiscation of Russian sovereign assets, directing them to Ukraine and uh, according to the mechanism compensate for their own damages. Because not only Ukraine is suffering from Russian aggression, a lot of uh, uh, Ukrainian partners are suffering as well. Also, Moldova, we, we should say, you yes. know, its its economy was destroyed. It had to take millions of refugees, and it's one of the poorest countries in the world. So, there's that. Uh, now, final question. You work at the Center for Victory. Yeah. So, the vision is victory. Getting rid of the Russian army from Ukrainian territory, and, you know, continuing after that. What is the vision for after? Let's say. One day will be victory day, no, the Russian army retreats from Ukraine. What is the vision? From, from, this is when military uh, combat stops, presumably, and then new things happen. What, what is the project? Well, uh, you know, you, uh, like, um, you influenced my answer with, uh, your, with your question, because you, say, you said, uh, one day uh, it shall be a victory when the Rus Russian army um, leaves Ukraine. Well, in this scenario, and uh, unfortunately it's uh, the most realistic scenario of, uh, uh, the, uh, of the Ukrainian victory when Russian army just leaves its territory, but still Russia continues to exist as, uh, uh, as a state which is used to be before and with the same political uh, leadership. And um, in this case, uh, uh, I cannot say that the global threat uh, shall, uh, shall disappear. It shall still be um, still uh, located near the Ukrainian borders. And uh, in, in, in that way, of course, Ukraine shall restore uh, all um, the damages from all the damages which uh, Russia have occurred. But also, Ukraine uh, should, uh, after that, be uh, in uh, constant and in a permanent readiness for the next war. So uh, it shall require support of its army and development of its army, of its technologies, of its uh, military resources. And really, 
uh, turn into the um, military uh, military country. And in my in my opinion, in order to really establish peace and security in in the region and in in the world, because Russia is a, a really a threat, global threat to the world, uh, leaving Ukrainian territory is not enough uh, for uh, for the victory. Real victory would be first if uh, the Russian Federation is occupied by the Allied forces and it's like uh, re restored, uh, re remade. Uh, but it's not realistic. I I, 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 I don't believe that's realistic. Yes, I, at all. I understand your sarcasm regarding your I'm I'm more than a little bit skeptical, but not sarcastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, me, me as well, actually. But I I'm like just um, theorizing about that. And uh, or the second way, if like uh, political leadership in Russia due to the internal process change, and the new leadership is uh, coming into negotiations about establishment and new. Um, uh, a new model of of relationship of relationship in, in the region. I think that is more possibly more realistic to work with Russian opposition, to work with the Russians that are clear Putin should go, the regime should change, and enable them to change their own country. Because I do I cannot imagine any other foreign country going into Russia. So. Anyway, I mean, is there is there a project in Ukraine to engage with the Russians who want to get rid of Putin? No, uh, cu currently we are only focused on first. We are only focused on uh, survival and on our victory. It's uh, it, it actually and unfortunately it's uh, really far as of now from being uh, a real perspective. And uh, although we are making a great success, but. You know, Russia uh, has now launched a long war scenario, and it has a lot of much more resources. It has much more um, missiles uh, and, uh, and and everything than Ukraine. So that's why we need support to survive. Because in in this scenario, uh, it's almost impossible uh, to win. We uh, we need partners, and we need allies, really. Uh, and that's what we are thinking about. And the sec second thing thing is that. We are currently, uh, from my viewpoint, as uh, as a person who is like advocating Ukrainian interests and who even often participates with the Russian opposition uh, leaders in the same events, I can say that uh, currently uh, there is a lot of skepsis uh, regarding them as well, uh, because first they are not, uh, they uh, don't have like common position. They do not seem to be united. Uh, each one of them is trying to uh, take on the leadership position, uh, either Kasparov or Navalny and uh, his um, deputies who are on, like who are not in prison, and uh, or Khodorkovsky. They are like looking in in different sides, and they are not uh, acknowledging the necessity to, to unite. So first they need to start working together more yes, closely. Of okay. course, and moreover, uh, you know, uh, considering uh, the former expressions of some of the Russian oppositions, we may now say that, yeah, they are great patriots of Russia, but uh, shall they uh, waive Russian imperialistic interests uh, regarding Ukraine? It's we. You're not clear on that. We are not clear on that. I mean, in case they uh, take on the leadership in Russia, we're not clear on that. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, let's leave it there. So, 
conclusion is Ukraine continues to be in survival mode, right? And so things, things are very, very serious, continue to be very, very serious. Thank you very much, Andriy Mikheyev, lawyer specialized in international law here in Kyiv, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Matej. That was great to talk to you. Thank you.